from Matthew 22. If you're using the Church Bibles, that's on page 827. And it says this. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast. But they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything's ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business. While the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants waded out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with the guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot, cast him into the outer darkness, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. You do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to him, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and, with their, and they left him and went away. The same day, Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us, the first married and died, and having no offspring left his wife to his brother. So too the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You're wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection... They neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? 
I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked him a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Well, we're going to have a look at that passage, but before we do, let me remind you that there's question time as soon as the sermon comes to an end. You have your order of service sheet, if that's helpful. And finally, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to spend time reflecting on um, how we're to love you first and then love our neighbour as ourselves. As we reflect on these things, might we know you better, so we know who it is that we serve, and what we're to be like. Amen. What's the most famous verse in the Bible? Well, obviously it's hard to know, but one verse that's often quoted by Christian and non-Christian alike is... Love your neighbour as yourself. And surprise, surprise, as much as it is quoted, it's also misquoted. First of all, people tend to think it's original to Jesus. So the non-Christian says, Jesus is a good teacher. After all, it was he who taught us to love your neighbour as yourself. But in reality, it was given by God through Moses many, many, many years before Jesus was to utter it. And it's found in Leviticus 19, verse 18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbour as yourself. I am the Lord. Then there is the fact that when people quote it, they always miss out the first part. Jesus says there is an order, and loving your neighbour is second. What people fail to quote is the first and the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, 
with all your mind. It's the very thing King Charles overlooked in this year's Christmas speech. Then there's the question of what does it actually mean to love your neighbour as yourself? That's to say, how does loving yourself fit in? Well, we live in a culture where the onus is on self-love. From the moment we're born, in many and varied ways, we're being drip-fed the importance of loving yourself. And it's seen in phrases like, you need to be true to yourself. You need to be honest with yourself. And there's the advice of our culture. Just be yourself. And then you can go on long trips around the world in order to find yourself. And so on. Finally, you have to love yourself before you can love someone else. Well, is this what Jesus means when he says, love your neighbour as yourself? I heard a vicar who believed just that. At a marriage, he chose the verse, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbour as yourself. And he went on to explain you can only love God and your neighbour by first loving yourself. Yeah, the bizarre thing is, my marriage never seems to flourish, flourish if and when I love myself first. Possibly the most quoted verse from the Bible yet clearly the most understood, misunderstood as well. Well, in Matthew 21, the religious leaders are irritated by Jesus. And in chapter 21, verse 46, we see they're looking for a way to arrest him. And in order to do that, they seek to trap him. In chapter 22, the question they ask is whether or not to pay taxes to Caesar. Give a particular answer and Jesus couldn't find himself in trouble with the ruling state. And the Pharisees encourage him in this direction. Have a look at verse 16. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. You do not care about anyone's opinion, for you're not swayed by appearances. In reply, Jesus asked the question, whose likeness is on the coin? If you just run through your mind the possible synonyms, synonyms for likeness, eventually you come to the word image. In which case then Jesus becomes, whose image does this coin bear? And the answer to that question is quite simply Caesar's. And so since this coin bears Caesar's image, give to him that which bears his image. But this raises a further question. 
What is it that bears God's image? And therefore, what is it that belongs to God? What is it that Jesus is referring to when he says, and to God the things that are God's? Well, it's we that bear God's image. It is we who should be given ourselves to him wholly. Now, this is not the answer the leaders were expecting. Once again, they expected the Messiah to bring an end to the nation that was oppressing the Jews. But Jesus explains that while our allegiance is first and foremost to God, those who are in his kingdom still love under, live under the rulers of this world. And so for now, they're to continue to pay taxes. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, they didn't get on. And one reason why they didn't get on was because the Pharisees, they believed in the resurrection, while the Sadducees didn't. And this is why in the next section we get the question about the resurrection. Notice that Jesus picks up on two points. It's found in verse 30. Sorry, 29. Jesus answered them, You're wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. So the first is regard with awareness of scripture. The second is their awareness of God's power. If we consider first the scriptures, we can go back to Daniel 12. In Daniel 12, beginning from verse 1, we read this. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who is charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who, are ter those who turn many to righteousness, like the stars forever and ever. For you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. The Old Testament teaches we will rise from the dead, at which point we shall be divided into those who are given everlasting life, and those risen to shame and everlasting contempt. Jesus goes on to explain the very fact that God reveals himself as the God of Abraham, which affirms that Abraham must be living. Otherwise, God is merely the king of the corpse. The other shortcoming with their response is how to think about the resurrection. They seem to think the dead will rise up and just slot back into their old lives. But the power of God means that upon our resurrection, our bodies will be superior to our old bodies. 
We read in Philippians 3 verse 21, Who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body? By the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. The resurrection body will receive, that we will receive will be different and superior to our current body. Well, after all these questions, Jesus has one for them. Whose son is the Christ? Their answer is the son of David. It's not that they're wrong, it's just that there's more to be said. In fact, it highlights the problem. Jesus quotes Psalm 110 and explains, How can the Messiah be David's son if David calls the Messiah Lord? Now the whole context of Psalm 110 is relevant. The Messiah is described as being surrounded by enemies. But God has promised to put enemies, the enemies of David's Lord, under his feet. David's Lord will rule in the midst of his enemies. And then his king will be a priest forever. All of this language points to the fact that this king, though David's son, has an origin that's superior to that of David's. This goes on to silence the Jew, Jewish leaders, but they continue with their plans to arrest him. And next time it's mentioned, kill him as well. Now from the point that Peter confessed Jesus to be the Christ, Jesus has been preparing his disciples for his suffering. He's heading towards Jerusalem to, in order to die. And as he faces Jerusalem, He's critical of the Jewish leaders. And the reason for his criticism is there a lack of allegiance to God. Also their lack of good fruit. Or to put it another way, their inability to look after their neighbour. What they do have is an abundance of self-love. And we see Jesus' most explicit critique of the leaders in Matthew 23. When Jesus explains which is the greatest commandment, it also exposes the leaders' failure to keep it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbour as yourself. You see, the vicar we mentioned at the start and our culture are both wrong. Love of God and neighbour does not start with love of yourself. It should be evident because the first and greatest commandment makes no mention of yourself at all. Love begins with love of God. Unless you love God, you cannot love your neighbour. But even in the second part, we're not instructed and encouraged to love ourselves. 
it's not actually part of the commandment to love yourself. Rather, the assumption is you already take great care of yourself. That's the one thing that's taken for granted. The reason it's included is exactly because it's something we're all very good at. The purpose of it is to help us see, well, what does loving our neighbour look like? How do you love your neighbour? Well, in Ephesians, Paul says, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it. It's this sentiment that's needed. We look after ourselves. We have a concern for our well-being. That's what we already do. So therefore, love your neighbour in the same way, in the same way that you take good care of yourself. It's not part of the command, but rather a description of how to love your neighbour. In Matthew 26, Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. In verse 39, he prays to his father, overwhelmed by what is about to happen. What does he pray? Well, what he doesn't say is this. I'm not sure this is a good idea. I know I agreed to it, but if I'm honest to myself, this is not the best way to express myself. Maybe if I could first learn to love myself, well, then maybe I might be able to go through with it. It sounds ridiculous when you put it on the lips of Jesus. So why would we talk like this? What Jesus actually says is, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Jesus loved God and was pleased to do his will. And he laid down his life for his neighbour. Notice that Jesus demonstrates first his love for his father as he obeys his will. And notice in obeying his father, he loves his neighbour as he lays his life down for him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you sent your son Jesus to die on our behalf. And we thank you that he fulfilled the greatest commandment and that he loved you and obeyed your will and was ready to lay down his life. We thank you that in laying down his life, he takes our penalty and it means that he not only does he demonstrate his love for his neighbour, but he provides us with our salvation. Amen.
While I mentioned at the start, there'll be an opportunity to ask questions or make comments in light of what we've been thinking about. So, any thoughts, questions or comments? Yes, Victor. Okay, so um, looking, so let me just repeat for the recording. So think about the paying taxes to Caesar. Um, why in verse 17 do they... Yeah, why do they say, tell us then what you th um, think, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? So I guess one of the things is that we're fa fairly familiar with the story, so we know how things run. But if you put yourself in that initial position when the question hasn't been answered and we don't know what, what Jesus might say, it puts Jesus in quite awkward position because... So we, we've got to remember that Jesus, the, Roman, um, the Roman army are, have invaded Israel. They sort of rule over the Jews and therefore the Jews are effectively paying homage to Caesar because they pay him taxes. But in their ideal situation, they wouldn't be under Caesar. They would have their uh, king in place. And so Jesus is claiming to be the king. So they say to him, we know you're not swayed by people's opinions. Should we pay Caesar's, uh, taxes to Caesar? very much expecting him to have to say and forcing him to say, no, we shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar. So that's what puts him in an awkward position. And that's why his response is so shrewd. Because he, I mean, he doesn't do it to keep Caesar happy. But in his question, well, it's more, because elsewhere in Romans, we hear that there's an expectation that we should um, be subject to and submit to our rulers. So this ultimately is 
a valid answer, but it's a valid answer that keeps Jesus out of trouble, but also exposes the fact that the Jewish leaders probably don't give to God the things that are God's. So there's quite a bit going on there. Is that all right? Time for another? I thought I was going to get off easy like like Adrian did last week. Yes, Susie. Okay, so, so, um, let's have a look. Yeah, so, so it's kind of a play on word at first. So in verse 20, Jesus says, whose likeness and inscription is this? Now, interestingly, um, it's actually um, in the NIV. It's not quite as good. It uses portrait. Um, but actually, likeness is one of the words that's used back in Genesis 1. Um, God's, God makes his people in his image and his likeness. So... When they say whose likeness is on the coin, um, then we can think in terms of that bears Caesar's image. So therefore give it to Caesar because it belongs to him because it bears his image. And then thinking in terms of Genesis 3, uh, sorry, Genesis 1, God has imprinted his image upon us. You know, like the coin... His image is imprinted upon us. And since it is imprinted upon us, we belong to him. And therefore we should give ourselves to him wholly and completely. Which means, I mean, I I think what I like about this is it then links up with the greatest commandment. The greatest commandment is that you should be wholly and utterly and completely um, committed to God, first and foremost. And what's clever is that Jesus has managed to say that while still paying taxes to Caesar. So ultimately, our loving the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, is committing everything we have and do and recognising that everything we have and do is his in the first place, you know, uh, the skills we have, we only have because he's given us them. Therefore, the money we earn, we only have because he's given us the skills to earn. He provides us with the breath we need to breathe. You know, he sustains us each day. Um, everything we are and have belonged to him. 
because he brings us into existence and therefore we should respond to him accordingly. And I guess, well, we're going to say a little bit in the reflection as well, but ultimately to know in more detail what it looks like to give ourselves to Jesus, or to God rather, and to love God, well, we can't get around the fact that we need to know God. So an interest, I mean, it's an interesting thing, isn't it? I think sometimes people make a distinction between I know a lot about God, but I don't love God. I'd like to love God more. I don't need to know any more about God. I think it's a slightly odd distinction to make because if I have a go at loving God, just my own ideas, you know, you're back to that. Well, basically, how do I think I should love God? You know, I could come with all sorts of weird and wonderful ways that I think I should love God. But ultimately, to love God how he wants me to love him, first thing I need to do is get to know him. And the more I know about God, the more precise my love of him is going to be. Which is then going to knock, have a knock-on effect to the second commandment, or the second greatest that is, the more I know about God and see how he loves and relates to others, the better I'll be in a position to know how to love others and relate to them. So, it's just there's just no way around it. If you want to love God, you've got to know him. If you want to love one another, you've got to know God to know how we're told to love one another. So the first depends on the second. Time for one more. Yes, Mackie. Yeah, good question. So just repeat it for recording. So in verse 11, we find out that there's a guest in there who's in there, but kind of shouldn't be in there because he hasn't got the right garment. So how's he got in there? So I guess I guess the most helpful thing is to think in terms of the difference between a um, sort of parable and the reality and the purpose of the parable. So obviously the reality, this wouldn't happen. You know, there wouldn't be the wrong person in at the feast. But because it's a parable, it, it can have the wrong person in the feast. And the reason why you do put the wrong person in the feast is because the purpose is to show there can't be the wrong purpose in the feast, if you see what I mean. So, but I think that messes with your head a little bit because it's just a bit like, well, that, that can't happen, can it? Because God's not going to end up 
inviting the wrong person to the feast. Um, but it so it works quite nicely um, because as you read through it, it gives us the assurance that only the right people will be at the feast, and it's God who determines who's in and out of the feast and how it, it will be sort of dealt with. Is that okay? Cool. Okay, we'll stop there. Uh, obviously, we can continue discussing these things uh, afterwards. But in a moment, we'll have a brief reflection. But before we do, we're going to stand to sing, Here is Love Vast as the Ocean.